2: The year is 1959 and I can't find my 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 bourbon my where's my where's it hello darling bourbon my what some like it hot
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to Unspooled. Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I am Paul Shear, and this is the podcast where each week we watch one film from the AFI Top 100 Greatest Films of All Time, 2007 edition, to see if they are really as good as people say. Do they hold up? And how have they influenced the films that we watch today? Today, we are talking about Some Like It Hot, and we have an amazing special guest, Mira Servino, on the show to talk about playing Marilyn Monroe. I'm very excited about that. But before we get into this uh, Tony Curtis, Jack Lemmon classic, Amy, let's go back and see what people are saying about Spartacus. You know, I was very excited to see that Panavision uh, the company that makes cameras uh, gave us a shout out on Twitter. They said, "Brilliant to hear Panavision and the Lawrence Arabia Sphero Panatar lens mentioned in Unspooled." Uh, the lens sits on display at the Panavision Woodland Hills uh, Center, where many illustrious DPs have asked to get their hands on it.
2: You know what? I've actually had my hands on it. Really? Yeah, I had to interview Rachel Morrison, and you know, the yeah. amazing, the amazing cinematographer for Rolling Stone. And when I went there, I met her at Panavision. They had it in a lockbox. They put it on my shoulder. It's wow. very heavy. And you, uh, there's a picture of me looking like my knees are going to buckle.
1: Well, we uh, retweeted some pictures of Panavision uh, posted. And you can really get a look at how big this lens is. And one of the funniest things I saw was when this uh, person from Panavision posted this tweet, so many people were contradicting the person at Panavision. Like, well, <laughs> it doesn't actually work like that. I, I don't think you use it that many times. Like, Dude, these—this is the guy. It's, he, he knows. It's television's
2: not-, not gonna bone you.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> you know, I really appreciated that, Smarty Tutu on Twitter wrote, and let me know that the love theme from Spartacus is actually very popular among paired figure skaters. Wow. And that if you watch a lot of paired figure skating, you're pretty much guaranteed to eventually see somebody do the love theme from Spartacus.
1: I, I'm going to now keep an ear open for that. Um, Trapper Sean M.D. Ceased uh, writes, regarding the Trumbo doing a shitload of rewrites for Spartacus and Kirk Douglas's papers at the University of Wisconsin, there are just ten. Folders of rewrites and revisions that come out to over 1,200 pages. That doesn't even count further folders of rewrites and drafts uh, in Trumbos papers. So, like, imagine that 1,200 pages. Most scripts are 90 to 120 pages. This is 10 times that and that's not even all of them amazing I mean I guess you're right he was writing different scripts for different actors
2: that's true and also James Mirabello at Video Pub speaking of the different scripts for different actors and the things they had to do to get all of this cast together he said that out of everybody in the cast, even though Lawton and Ustinov get the best lines, that is it is the austere, self-righteous villainy of Laurence Olivier that makes the movie as good as it is. And James Marbello says, fighting words here, he is my second favorite movie baddie
1: after Hans Gruber. Wow, interesting. I like that Hans Gruber is up that high. Um, it's true. By
2: the way, I met a girl the other day who does sort of a movie-themed burlesque, and in her December show, so, that's true. And I met a girl the other day who does a movie-themed burlesque here in Los Angeles. Right. She does like
1: Jurassic Park. Oh wow!
2: Uh, and in December, she's going to be doing a Die Hard Jurassic Park where she is stripping as Hans
1: Gruber. Amazing. I was gonna say, if she performs as a raptor, what part of her body does she use to open those door handles? Uh, wow. Okay. Robin and- Maroney uh, writes, uh, listening to the unspooled episode of Spartacus and wondering if there's a Cretan liars paradox in the I am Spartacus scene.
2: Cretan liars paradox. We should say, by the way, it's not calling the liar a Cretan. It's okay. about you know a, a philosophical idea about a man from Crete who would say that all people from Crete are liars or that all Cretans are liars. But if you say that and you're from Crete, then are you lying about being liars?
1: Is it true or false?
2: So Let's it's a ahead.
1: lie that's also true or is this a... Uh...
2: It's a paradox, man. Oh,
1: man. Well, all right. Well, get your <laughs> mind right about this. So on the terms laid down by the Romans, if Spartacus identifies himself as Spartacus, he's spared crucifixion. So everyone should just kept their mouth shut.
2: That's interesting. I mean, I'm wondering if, like, r- part of that argument is if Spartacus had just raised his hand and said, I am Spartacus and not everybody else would have joined in, then is that a happier ending? Because only Spartacus would have died like he was going to die anyways and all the other people would have gone home.
1: And and I would ar- argue that he would die a hero's death. I mean, you know, it's like he would almost be more powerful, you know, in, in death than he would be in life because everyone would be like, whoa, there he is out there for display. I mean, we know about Jesus. He gets a lot of play from that.
2: So is it a happy ending that in that choice that's the stirring emotional scene, it just makes everyone die?
1: (laughs) I don't know. These are the questions. Look, this is the kind of paradoxes this movie opens up. You know, um, I want to just say thank you to all of our unspoolers uh, for coming out to our Alamo Drafthouse show uh, where we talked about the Beatles. We'll be doing this monthly. Uh, We have a really fun topic coming up for October, so stay tuned for that. Get your tickets as soon as they are announced. We keep on playing around with this live format and uh, each show has been a little bit different and a lot of fun. Uh, Also, if you are interested in purchasing an unspooled shirt, you can get those at tpublic.com slash stores slash unspooled the bde shirt is really selling great and uh, also moving is the uh, i love leper shirt so thank you everybody for jumping in on those and amy i want to just say that last week i got called out uh by the listeners to the show because i missed a joke that someone did in the call-in section um Last week, someone pitched the idea for That Thing You Do, uh, that Tom Hanks-directed film about the band. And like, I can't believe that you missed that joke. And uh, the reason why I missed that joke is I've never seen that movie. <laughs> I've never seen that movie. Have you seen That Thing You Do? A Lady Never Tells. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I guess I didn't – the way people were responding to it was like – you idiot. It's that thing you do as if it was like The Godfather or Star Wars. Like, I didn't think this movie was like, like how did I go my whole life without th- uh, seeing that thing you do? But It was
2: that thing you didn't do. Isn't <laughs> that funny? Is Sorry. Uh,
1: I liked it. I'm into it. Well, let's see if uh, anyone pulls the wool over my eyes this week because- Uh, Last week, we asked you to give us a better title for Some Like It Hot. It it wasn't really an effective title, I think, especially in watching the movie. I feel like there's a better title out there. It's just a line of dialogue about jazz. Uh, So let's hear what people thought.
2: You put so much scorn
1: in the word jazz. (laughs) (laughs) Let's hear what people think a better title for Some Like It Hot is. Hey, Paul and Amy, just like Some Like It Hot is a line from the movie, I think the best title is also a line in the movie. It's the last line in the movie, and it is nobody's perfect.
3: I think a better title for Some Like It
1: Hot would be Jack Lennon's Legs.
3: As a tribute
4: to Tom Hanks, let's just call it Boosom Buddies. I would call it Nobody's Perfect.
3: If we're renaming Some Like It Hot, Based
4: on any of the lines from the movie, uh, I'm going to have to go with my favorite one, which is buttermilk. Uh,
5: A great uh, new title for Some Like It Hot would be Hining
3: Hot Dogs. Instead of Some Like It Hot, name it after the last line in the movie. Nobody's perfect.
1: You know, Amy, I think we have a clear
2: winner here. Yeah, five people said nobody's perfect. Five people. And that actually, I like that title, nobody's perfect. Although I will say my favorite word is also buttermilk in this film. And I I'm, we're definitely playing the buttermilk clip. I'm, I have a soft spot for buttermilk.
1: So just call the movie buttermilk.
2: Actually, wait—that sounds a little bit too much like butterface. Now that I'm thinking about it. Like Tony Curtis is a great lady. Buttermilk <laughs> doesn't have any because they can't lactate.
1: All right. Anyway, I I think nobody's perfect is is my getting my vote there. So thank you for playing. And Amy, let's get into it. Some like it hot. Boop boop be doo The year is 1959, and all around the world, students attempt to break the record for the most people jammed into a telephone booth. Liberace wins eight. 1,000 pounds in a defamation suit against the Daily Mirror for hinting that he was a homosexual. Volvo invents the seatbelt and refuses to patent it so that all manufacturers can use the life-saving device. The Rat Pack is introduced, and Americans swoon over Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, Sammy Davis Jr., Peter Lawford, and Joey Bishop. Popular movies are Ben-Hur, North by Northwest, and today's flick, Some Like It Hot. It comes in number 22 on the AFI Top 100 list. It comes down 8 points from its number 14 rank in the previous list. Amy, Some Like It Hot, who's in it? What's it about?
2: Some Like It Hot, it is directed by our good friend Billy Wilder. I realize we've been going through Billy Wilder's films in chronological order. We started with Double Indemnity, then we went to Sunset Boulevard, and now here we are when he moves into comedies, and we have one more comedy that he does after this on the list. So this is Billy Wilder in a script that he co-wrote with I.A.L. Diamond, who would be his writing partner for 12 films, and it stars the heavy hitters of its day, Tony Curtis and Jack Lemmon. Well, Jack Lemmon's coming up at this moment as band singers in 1929 who witness a mafia murder have to go on the run dressed as women on a trip to Florida where they meet... A very foxy ukulele player named Marilyn Monroe as Sugarcane, Cole Walzgick. And there's various romantic misadventures that ensue as Tony Curtis and Jack Lemmon lust after her while dressed as women. And then Tony Curtis invents a third persona completely, absolutely sibling out and uh, wooing Marilyn by any means necessary.
1: I mean, Amy, this movie is kind of locked in my head along with the greats, right? Like when you think about great American cinema like Get Hot is up there as one of the, the defining great comedies. However, I'm going to start this off with a very big uh, confession. I don't know if it should be one of the great films. I think it's a very good film, but it's funny how... A part of this film is it's number twenty two on the list. It was that's 14.
2: very high, super, super, super high. And you're right. This is this is one of the unquestionable greats, right? You're right. like, I love movies. I love Citizen Kane. I love Wizard of Oz. I like Some Like It Hot. This just sort of an undeniable trifecta that anybody could say. I like. I actually, I had a different experience. I liked Some Like It Hot even slightly better this time watching it, mm. which to me is unusual because if you, you would ask me like a year ago when we started this podcast, how do you feel about Some Like It Hot being twenty two? I would have said it's a travesty because my favorite Marilyn Monroe movie is Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. Right. I love that movie so much. It's not on this list. It is tremendous. I think it is a better Marilyn performance. I think it's a better comedy. And yet this watch, I think just because we've been in such a wilder zone and because we've been talking about Hitchcock, I had this kind of mindset really going into it right after that opening scene, this opening scene here that's so fantastic, this basically three, four minute silent scene throwing you into the 1920s, watching this hearse go down and these mobsters and the shootout and the the comedy of these mobsters being utterly unafraid of the cops firing guns at them, a movie that has all this danger, but no real danger. And I was like, oh, this is if Hitchcock did a comedy in a way. Do you know what I mean? Like the way that Wilder frames comedy in here is all about the suspense and the surprise. You know, panning down and seeing that the hearse is leaking out liquor. Yeah. And he's thought of so much as just a person who, like, is so word-focused. You know, he's all about the interplay and the plot and the comic timing. And in this watch, I really appreciated his camera movements and the way he reveals information to you. One pant leg with a gun, another pant leg with the bullets, that I found myself respecting it more for the first time and being like, okay, I'm at peace with you being this high.
1: Well, I will say that Billy Wilder is a fantastic director who I think, you know, strove to be like Lubitsch and, you know, everything that he composes on screen is elevated. I don't think there's like a sloppy Billy Wilder film. I agree with you. I think that the performances here, the way it opens up is really interesting. The DNA of this movie is all over the place. The thing I couldn't get out of my head in watching it was, oh, this is kind of like Pineapple Express in a way. Like, you know, you see all these other movies and yes, you could you can also go in the direction of saying it's like white chicks, it's like bosom buddies. It's, you know, we've also seen this cross-dressing thing and cross-dressing is an interesting idea in this film because I think many people have taken this idea of like men dressing as women or women dressing as men and kind of gone for the low road on it. You know, like, oh my gosh, what is it like to be in a ladies' room? And this movie, oddly, doesn't go there. Like, you know, it, it is more about, like, gender and class and relationships and smartly done. I mean, obviously, we've seen these tropes before, or obviously, we've seen these tropes after and and to such great degree that it's hard to kind of separate the two. But I was surprised at how the original doesn't go low. It kind of stays high.
2: I was thinking about that too. There's no like, rah rah rah, like staring at yeah. Tony Curtis's ass. You know, it's right. like da da da. Look at this. Like the comedy is never about what their bodies really look like in it. The yeah. idea of looking, of of women looking grotesque, is never the punchline.
1: Yeah, and you, what's interesting about this film too is. This is a time in which color films are being made. Billy Wilder makes it in black and white and backdates it, right? So the movie comes out in 59, but this is about prohibition times. And I think that that layer on the film adds a gravitas to the situation. Like These two men facing poverty in the freezing cold Chicago winter take this opportunity that it's not the first thought. I mean, even though Jack Lemmon is way more, you know, gung-ho about it uh, before Tony Curtis gets on board. But it's 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 not only that they're poor. It's not only it's winter. It's that they've now experienced a mob hit. Like So the pressure really is on for them to do this. And I feel like a lot of the times when you've seen these movies... They don't really have the greatest reason. It's sort of like, mm, I can move into this apartment building or whatever like this. But they really does a great job of laying as much foundation to make it believable uh, to get to this point where these two guys decide to be women.
2: Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's almost like King Kong, right? Fey yeah. Ray stealing an apple, being starving, and a kid being like, you want to come on a boat and meet a giant gorilla and maybe die? Sure. I have right. no better options. This is how bad the depression is. And you know what really sold it for me this time? is I've been getting interested in Tony Curtis. You know, when I was researching Jamie Lee Curtis, he's Jamie, Jamie Lee Curtis's dad. A lot of the things she says about him are not incredibly nice. So I've been fascinated, like, what really was Tony Curtis like? Which is kind of questionably awful. He wrote a lot, of actually. He has a He has a pretty good autobiography that I was working my way through that's basically the story of what is it like to grow up devastatingly handsome, incredibly poor in New York, like the son of Hungarian Jewish immigrants named Bernie Schwartz, What do you need when you walk into a room and you know that you're beautiful even when you're 13 years old and how can you use it to get money because you're so sick of being poor? Like he has this fascinating mentality that carries with him into Hollywood. And I've always, you know, kind of been like, oh, yeah, Tony Curtis, sort of a jerk. We didn't even really talk that much about his performance last week in Spartacus, even though I think he has one of the better scenes in the film, like that last one. The big fight between him and Kirk Douglas and who can kill the other one so that the other one doesn't have to live on and be crucified I mean, that scene's amazing, but he's sort of like a lightweight in this. I was struck watching this movie. What a good actor he is.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting because Jack Lemmon wins the Academy Award for this film. But I believe that Tony Curtis is doing some of the best work, and you said it earlier about being Sybil like he's doing three different characters one which is the character that we are introduced to then his you know his female character and then we have this rich millionaire who is the you know the heir to the shell oil fortune who is essentially uh, you know Cary Grant I mean you know and he and, and very openly he's doing Cary Grant and it's a great, funny performance. I mean, when Cary Grant saw it, he was like, well, I don't talk like that. Um,
2: (laughs) No human being on the planet Earth talks like that. But (laughs) But the way that he talks, even as himself, I think is, I pulled this clip really early on of them just kind of talking about their stakes and why they have to make money and how desperate they are. Mm -hmm. And I like it because you hear these two different comedy styles that in a way don't fit together. The way Tony Curtis just sounds so normal and sincere and Jack Lemmon sounds a little bit more manic. You know, he's more in the kind of, jim carrey version of performance and they clash a little bit and i just i, I love the soul in the way that tony curtis plays this like it's really happening to him
3: well that solves one problem now we don't have to worry about who we're going to pay first quiet i'm thinking and of course the landlady's going to lock us out mow down at the delicatessen no more canock worst on credit we can't borrow from the girls because they're on the way to jail Dada.
4: And we're... i wonder how much sam the bookie will give us for our overcoats
3: sam the bookie
4: there's nothing doing. You're not going to put my overcoat on a dog. Oh, you, you, Jerry, I told you it's a sure
2: thing. We will freeze. It is below zero. We'll get pneumonia.
4: Look, stupid. He's 10 to 1. Tomorrow we'll have 20 overcoats.
2: Like, he doesn't scream. He doesn't try to, like, raise his energy level. He just sounds so committed and thoughtful about what he believes about this, race, this racing dog.
1: But also, he's against Jack Lemon, who is performing like he is on stage. And I think Jack Lemon is a quintessentially great small performer there's so much that goes on internally with him but in this movie he is i mean broad, broad and 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 I, I, mean, I don't I'm not saying I mind it I I think it it plays lovely but I think that that kind of um interaction between the two actually helps move the story forward like um I like the way that Tony Curtis is very cool and I also like how you see a desperate side of him, like he really wants to woo Marilyn, but you see underneath the veneer of his heir that because his heir to the shelf fortune is very um don't I can't get involved and and kind of standoffish and you know, and, and there's so many levels going on here, and he's playing them so well, whereas Jack Lemon kind of just adopts a personality of this woman that he is playing, and then really gets in well with the girls like I mean and and doesn't do it in a lascivious way you know there's something really joyful in that but I I do find it to be a little bit of a bummer that you know Tody Curtis doesn't get the recognition that Jack Lemmon does maybe it's because Jack Lemmon is new to the scene and people are just like oh we like this guy and you know this is the part like you were saying earlier people at the top of their game He was not the first thought, not even the first or second. I mean, originally it was going to be Frank Sinatra. He wouldn't come in and audition. Then it was going to be Jerry Lewis. Jerry Lewis passes so much so that every year after he won the Academy Award, Jack Lemmon would send a box of chocolates to Jerry Lewis, thanking him for passing. (laughs)
2: Well, that's just so thoughtful. And it kind of makes me feel a little guilty for hating. I really hate Jack Lemmon's laugh in this movie.
1: Oh, it's a cackle. I mean, yeah. It's
2: terrible. I mean, I I was like, what does this sound like? And it sounds like if you had a machine gun that only spits out a cat hairball, that's exactly, it's just like hissy and airy and So you wouldn't want to
1: see like Fran Drescher playing the Marilyn Monroe part in there. You wouldn't think that that, those two laughs would maybe cancel (laughs) each other out in a very aggressive way. Do you know this, by the way, um, do you know the story that when they were fitting the two guys for dresses, uh, Tony Curtis kind of joked that he had a better butt than Marilyn Monroe? (laughs) And she said, well... But you don't have tits like these. And she, like, opened up her – that's her quote. (laughs) She opened up her blouse for him. So she was very aware of what kind of body she had.
2: Well, they were also getting fitted because Tony Curtis wanted to make sure that he and Jack Lemmon looked at least as good as she did. That they didn't want to be the dowdy types in woman – in kind of matronly dresses. Yeah. That if Marilyn Monroe was going to get these clothes by Kelly, Ori Kelly – who's massive by the way. I mean some of the clothes that Gorey Kelly did are giant classics like Casablanca, Maltese Falcon. He did all the Busby Berkeley's. He did most of Betty Davis's clothes. Like he was really known for being this costume designer who could look at a person's body and he would fit a dress to them instead of being wow. like this is the this is the dress I, want, I want you in. Yeah. I want that too. I'm like please make me a pair of pants. All I want in my life is somebody to make me a
1: real good pair of pants. You need to go to Town. they'll make you. Uh, every suit that I have in Black Monday is made For my body. Are
2: you serious? True. In Korea? Yeah. Let's talk about this one. Let's let's not bore people right now. But I would love that. I want to wear a suit all winter. Oh,
1: you can totally get that done for you. It's great. Oh,
2: good. I have your number. I'll call you. Yeah.
1: I mean, unfortunately, all my clothes. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, all my clothes in my drawer are '80s, so it's not. I can't take them home. Um, But
2: yeah, like he had this way of looking at what was beautiful about everybody's body and highlighting it, and I appreciate that. Tony Curtis, who knew very well that the main reason people wanted to put him in movies was because he was good looking. Mm -hmm wanted to look as good as a woman as he did as a man. And I think that's part of why we this humor works in the female turned men. And, and I think that's part of why this humor works in the male turned female comedy is they're not making being a female look like something ugly.
1: I do love that idea of like wanting to present the right way. And, and I think that that also is kind of the appeal of it. They're not Overly done. It's not Mrs. Doubtfire. It's not White Chicks. And not that those are the only two, but it definitely is more in line with Bosom Buddies, where it's a simpler makeup job, right? It it looks like something that you could actually do. We don't know how they did it, um, but uh, we see them kind of in and out.
2: It's not even really like Tootsie. They're more recognizably themselves than in Tootsie.
1: By the way, I'm forgetting all about Tootsie. This is interesting, again, that. Two of the comedies on this list revolve around this idea of like pretending to be another gender. Yeah.
2: There's nothing funnier than that. So it's,
1: um, but, but I did but find but it. Yeah,
2: like, and I think that's part of why the black and white is so effective. Is you can't really see what else they put on their face. Right. Well, you cause... get a sense that there's lipstick.
1: But, but color made them look ghoulish, apparently. Yeah. Like, that was the whole thing. They looked like green, like goblins.
2: But I like that when you look at them, they do just look like a feminine version of themselves. Yeah. You can see that it's them. You always recognize them. It's never, like, a little double take. And maybe that's why they cast Tony Curtis. He makes a very beautiful woman. Okay, well, then let's listen to Tony talk about how after, I think, four full days of doing makeup and costume tests, he and Jack Lemon emerged to see who Josephine and Daphne would be.
4: When Jack came out... He was like a 20-cent tart. He was chewing gum and... His <laughs> hips swaying left and right, you know, carrying a purse. When I saw him, instinctively, I understood that I, could, I was not going to do that. So I came out like Grace Kelly or my mother, always meticulous. And doing wardrobe tests, I realized we had it made. That is to say, we knew we
1: were going to blend with each other like two good musicians. I love that that it was a conscious choice to kind of play off of what Jack Lemmon was doing. We talked about that a little bit. But you know that he had a hard time maintaining that falsetto voice for Josephine.
2: Really and, you mean having a voice that makes you sound like this, this it good for <laughs> sounding like a woman?
1: <laughs> he but he basically had to have another actor use their voices, actor Paul Freeze, to dub him to do the Josephine parts.
2: Well, I don't he you know he almost never really talked about that. He was always like, I was great in that movie, kid. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but I mean look, he's still doing a lot, you know, I think I'm sure that was maybe a choice that was made in you know, in the sound mixing of it. Like, oh, you know, it sounds just a little bit too similar. And Marilyn Monroe can't be an idiot. I mean, one of the reasons why she's hesitant to even sign on to this film is because she didn't like that her character would be dumb enough to not, you know, see that these are men dressed as women. Justin and so
0: good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag & Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more great brands great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack but hurry for first dibs get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today great brands great prices that's why you rack
4: Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest but let me play devil's advocate here let's see so no that's a good thing Uh, (laughs) that's definitely not a problem Uh, Reese's you did it you stumped this charming devil
2: Well, yeah, I mean, we should talk about the Marilyn-ness of the dog because people are going to say some things about Marilyn that are not so nice later in this episode about the making of this movie. But let's back up and just kind of set the tone for who Marilyn is at this moment when she makes this movie in 1958. The big thing to know is that Marilyn had not made a movie in Hollywood in two years, which is an insanely long time given that her career really only took off around like 51, 52. Her career was not that long. Then she got married to Arthur Miller. She made a film in London. She moved to New York with him and was trying to be this dutiful wife, really, being like, I'm married to you, I love you, I support you, write genius plays, maybe write something for me, we'll see how it goes. And Arthur Miller had this massive, really, writer's block, I guess is the only way to really phrase it. He had this massive writer's block, and part of his way of taking it out on the world was to tell Marilyn that she was a failure and add to this wow. insecurity that she had? I mean, do you know much about Marilyn's life?
1: I know a little bit from all the biopics that I've seen on TV, you know, and and in my little bit of reading, you know, every now and then, you know, Marilyn pops up again and there's like a slew of new articles and and yeah, everything is incredibly depressing.
2: It's incredibly depressing. And I'll probably just I'll just give you like a the quickest paragraph summary because we're mm. not gonna get to talk to her about again. We're yeah. not in this entire podcast, which breaks my heart. But, you know, Marilyn was raised in foster homes. Her mother was mentally ill, spent most of her life in a mental home herself. Her mother did. So she was always in different foster homes, occasionally getting molested in a foster home. She says nobody ever touched her on the head until she was eight years old. And she remembers the first person who petted her. It was just a woman who was really nice. It always meant the world to her. She only had one outfit which was just like a white shirt and a blue skirt her entire adolescence, until one day one of her foster sisters loaned her a sweater. And that when she wore the sweater to school when she was 13, suddenly every man in school, every boy, was like, oh, my God, because they had no idea she had a figure. She was wearing this foster child uniform, basically, that she'd been handed on. And from that moment on, almost her life just got more difficult. You know, boys were always – Chasing her, howling her, and because of that, girls would never be her friend. She was either, she went from ignored to hated immediately. And that was basically her life. She got married at 15, 16 in order to get away from that and get out of the foster care system. By 19, she's a divorcee trying to make it in Hollywood and meeting nothing but what she calls wolves. And she was really the opposite. So we have the characters she's playing. Men tried to buy her with anything. Like one guy was like, I am dying. I'm going to die in a month. Please marry me, and you can have a million dollars when I die. And she wouldn't do it. You know, she really refused to be bought. She has this famous line that in Hollywood they try to buy a kiss for a thousand dollars and your soul for five cents. Right. And that she gave away her soul. She but she never got sold for a kiss. And so basically, I guess the, her psychological framework which I'm trying to get at, is just that she was desperate for approval her entire life. She never felt like she had any schooling or any training. She felt very insecure. That's why she was this autodidact trying to read and learn about art and history because she would go to dinner parties and people talk about Botticelli and she had no idea who that was because she never got educated. She was always moving around. So she marries the smartest man on earth. He has writer's block. He tells her it's her fault. And then she falls in with the Strasburgs, the method acting teachers that we were talking about, who basically are like, let's teach you how to be a good actor. And it's all about connecting with your childhood, and it's all about repetition, and like, I want to build you up. But they were always just sort of getting her to look at herself and look at her childhood and look at her fragile parts. And at the same time, she's in psychology. And at the same time, she's getting really interested in therapy, so she's going to therapy every day. So her whole life for two years was basically, let's talk about why you're broken, and then she does this movie which is a throwback to all the gold digger parts she'd been trying to get away from. Right. And so she shows up on the set really upended and is kind of a disaster.
1: Well, I mean, yeah, I want to get into the disaster that is Marilyn, but I also want to get into her performance in this film, which I know you like, gentlemen, prefer blondes. But I think it's very good. Like what we see as an audience, I feel like it's understated. I think that her character is believable. She's also surrounded by interesting female characters there. You know, she's not a ditz. Like, you found her to be a character who wanted love. And and yes, she wanted to get out of this situation. And she sees this guy as rich. But the guy who's rich isn't rich. It's Tony Curtis playing into a fantasy that she has. So they're both kind of at end. You know, they're both kind of taking each other for a ride here. But I don't seem her... I don't see her to be um, like in it just for the money, if that makes sense. I don't know. I just thought the character is a little bit more grounded and well refined than it probably had an, a, a right to be. And I was really surprised by that.
2: Yeah, because on one level you would say this character has a lot of sim- similar things in common with Gentlemen Prefer Blondes being Lorelai Lee. Like, I want to marry a rich dude. How do I get it? But Gentlemen Prefer Blondes is all about a woman who's just like so calculating and funny and sexy and in control about it and, you know, can I just play a clip from Gentlemen Prefer Blondes because I sure, love it so much? Sure. This is just her being given a tiara to try on and not knowing what a tiara is? Look.
3: Did you ever anywhere anything like
4: it? All blue stones. Cozy little job, what?
3: May I just hold it for a minute? Of course. How do you put it around your neck? You don't love it. It goes on your head. You must think I was born yesterday. Well, sometimes there's just no other possible explanation.
0: No, no, my dear, she's quite right. Like so. It's
3: a tiara. (laughs) You do wear it on your head. I just love finding new places to wear diamonds.
2: (laughs) I mean, I love that movie so much because she's in on the joke of being this beautiful child who doesn't know anything about the world. And what's so different about Sugarcane is that I think Marilyn really lets you see this sadness in her, yeah right this is a person who we meet who's already been through a million bad love affairs, who's kind of an alcoholic, yeah and is on her way like this character, sugarcane, could have been kicked out in the cold in that train that night, and what would she have done? and she would be stuck. That's exactly what this character is, and you see this desperation in in her and I really appreciate seeing that sadness burble up. you know it's a really tragic character in well, a lot of
1: ways. I also heard that Arthur Miller. Was very present on set, much to the chagrin of Billy Wilder, giving a lot of notes and suggestions of how they could change the character. I don't know what necessarily took, but I think at the end of the day, you feel for all these characters. All these characters are in a desperate situation. They're trying to get out of their situation. I mean, you know, Jack Lemmon and Tony Curtis are doing the same exact thing. They just want to get, they need to Survive, right? They're all trying to find the next place to land.
2: Yeah, and so much of this is just about an entire society where everybody is pretending to be something they're not. Yeah, from the very beginning of this movie, a bootlegger's car is pretending to be a hearse. A bar is pretending to be a funeral parlor. When the funeral parlor bar gets invaded, you have this whole scene where they're drinking cocktails that are actually milk, and where the people are pretending to be Harvard lawyers. I just want to hear this man say buttermilk. Hold on, let's listen.
4: pick Charlie. Never heard of it. Buttermilk. (laughs) You're smart to drink your own stuff, huh? Come on, on your feet. You're just wasting the taxpayer's money.
2: Call your lawyer if
3: you want
4: to. These are my lawyers. All Harvard men.
2: I mean, those mafia men are not Harvard men. Right. Everybody in this movie is putting on airs in some way. And even Mary Monroe is going to be putting on airs as a Vassar girl so that this yacht millionaire will think she can blend in with him.
1: Well, it's interesting how we are really looking at class, right? We all, these characters are floating through different levels and changing to be accepted by wherever they are at. And and it, it also, I think, comments on something that we all do, which is like, we all are chameleons to a certain extent. When you get into a situation, you kind of just want to not rock the boat. And I I do like that. And those kind of brilliant observations or subtle observations about that make this film, again, a lot more impressive than what follows this film or this genre of film. Um, But as we are talking about Marilyn Monroe, let's get into the ridiculousness that's going on here. She's, you know, two to three hours late every day, you know, uh, she has to read her lines off of cards so much so that Billy Wilder is like putting her lines in a drawer so she can read them. But she would forget which drawer to open. So he just puts it in all the drawers. You know, she takes 47 takes to say it's me sugar correctly. She says sugar, it's me or it's sugar me. Uh, you know, or where the where that line, uh, where's the bourbon? She needed 59 takes. You know, she is just kind of a nightmare and, and maybe it is because she is psychologically fragile uh maybe it's because you know her husband is hanging around you know it, Paula she,
2: Strasburg is there Paula Strasburg wow. is there basically also like everybody's she's at that point in your career where everybody wants a piece of you and everybody's like I'm the only one you can trust here and for a people pleaser like Marilyn had to be by design because right. you know, she always talks about she lived her whole life worried that her foster parents whoever they were at that moment that month We're going to kick her out for something that she didn't do. So she just lived her life in fear of making anybody mad at her. So here she is on a set with all of these people who position themselves as her masters. And she's losing her mind because they all want different things.
1: Now, with that all being said, the performance she turns in is pretty fucking good. Like, it's, you know, it doesn't feel stilted. It doesn't feel weird. And I watched that clip about gentlemen prefer blondes with you. I like her her performance is so... Subtle and small, it reminds me of how we saw her in All About Eve way back in the day, like, she is smart and a good performer. And I think the way I always view her, and I think about her is the, you know, singing happy birthday, Mr. President, like this kind of blonde bombshell, but she's kind of a good actress.
2: Yeah, I mean, she reminds me of my favorite parts that Sofia Vergara does. Mm. You know, Sofia Vergara, I think, channels a lot of this, like, I'm too sexy for this modern world. I'm almost a cartoon exaggeration of a perfect woman. And I'm going to make this so that I am in control of the joke and that the joke is not spilled upon me.
1: And I will say, seeing her behind the scenes with other women, you get to see one side of her. And then you get to see this other side of her when she's with the, you know, the heir to the shell fortune, which I think is... A fun dichotomy for her, too. I I think that that's a really fun way of kind of turning this attitude that she has on its head. It's true.
2: Although, can I say, Mm -hmm. girl to girl, as, you know, say, Jack Lemmon's Daphne, Marilyn's kind of a lousy friend. To be honest, I mean, she's just like the friend you have who's a little bit of a drag who just wants to talk about her ex-boyfriends all the time. Like, I have had that friend. And you're sort of like, all right, let's pour the bourbon out. I guess we have to drink two bottles of wine and hear her moan about her ex again. Like, (laughs) Marilyn doesn't ask a lot of questions to them.
1: No, not at all. And I was also kind of surprised at how, from the business side of it, Marilyn comes into this film and has a couple of smart demands. She only signs on after they give her 10% of the gross of this movie. So she is, um, she's not somebody that the system is taking advantage of. Yes, she is in a life where people are taking advantage of her, but she's making like good deals. And that's something that is very rare in Hollywood too. I feel like people get eaten up and spit out, but she is at least in control of that, knowing what she brings to a picture. And so much so that, you know, I think... This movie, they wanted Mitzi Gaynor to do this part. You know, Marilyn was a real get for them. And it's, it, I think it actually makes the film even better that they have Marilyn in the center of it.
2: Yeah, I mean, otherwise, because that's why I'm so fascinated by the fact that she gets top billing. M- Mitzi Gaynor would have not gotten top billing. Well, I think they film. were
1: just surprised that she wanted, like, It's weird because it seems like she wanted to do it, but she didn't want to do it. Like this movie is in black and white. And she had had a stipulation in her contract that she only does color films. So she's kind of going against a lot of different things. Yeah,
2: like one of the other roles that I think was offered to her at the time was William Faulkner's The Sound and the Fury. Exactly the kind of part she kept being like, put me in that. Let me do. Let me go. Let me act. I've been spending three years pumping up my weights to learn how to do this. Let me try. But she chooses this, which – You know, in retrospect, it was such a smart decision to be in a film that became iconic, even though it probably wouldn't – I don't think it would have become this iconic if not for
3: her.
1: I would argue this is the movie that most people have seen that stars Marilyn Monroe, right? Like – in the grand scheme of things, we talk about this movie being in this upper echelon of classic comedies. I mean, what Seven Year Itch, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, and this are probably the top three yeah. of her starring people aren't films.
2: Knocking down the door for the Prince and the Showgirl, even though that's fun,
1: right? And I just think that the, this this is the film that most people see or understand her from. And obviously, you see the iconography of Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, and you know, Madonna. I think really embraced that in the '80s and '90s. Um, Directed,
2: Wait. by the way, by Mary Lambert, who did Pet Cemetery. Oh, really? I just found that out, and it blew my mind. She, wow. Mary Lambert also did the Like a Prayer Madonna video. I, I'm obsessed now, newly, with Mary Lambert, because I had no idea she did all the music videos that made my childhood.
1: Marilyn Monroe, even though she's taking 10% of the gross here, does cost production half a million dollars due to all of her delays. And they were very bizarre delays because at one point, that whole scene that she does with Tony Curtis on the beach, they had blocked three days. Like, they're never going to get this out. And then they finish it in like within like a couple of hours. Like, you know, so she's unpredictable too, which is interesting. And I think Billy Wilder straight up hates her. Um, He goes back
2: and forth I mean like during the making of the movie He's losing his mind He's taking French suppositories That are just designed to make him fall asleep at night Because he was under so much stress Not knowing if he was going to get his full day in Of shooting tomorrow Because who knew when she was going to show up Wow So he was inserting things in his ass To make himself go to bed at night Amazing And he twisted his back He lost his mind And then later on when it was over When the dust settled And his film was out And it Mm -hmm. was a big hit He said you know what Anybody could show up on a set and learn their lines, but it takes a true artist to show up not knowing your lines and still turn in that performance. Yeah. And plus so no one will go spun see. do a couple of it yeah. <laughs> no one will go see it anyways. But uh it's it's fascinating. I also wonder about like the psychological fallout for Tony Curtis and Jack Lemmon because they had this pressure like if it was going to take her 59 takes to get this scene right, they couldn't fuck up if she got it right. You know, like if on her 59th take she landed the words and then they screwed up.
1: Oh. But I would also say as an actor who, when you do mess up once or twice and you can't get something, to keep that energy going for 59 takes, I mean, I've never been in an environment where you have to do it that many times. Because, you know, I think we talk about Kubrick, I think Fincher, uh, they do like dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of takes. I've never been in that situation where you are doing dozens like the most takes I think I've ever done it was a big group scene it was about 30 and 30 sounds like well it's not that much it is when you're doing like a three minute scene over and over and over and over and over you forget what you're saying you just there's no you know I know they talk about like theater you're on stage and every night it's different and you're reacting and you're in the moment or you try to stay in the moment but doing the same thing over and over and over again. It just, I, I wonder if it dulls performances. I, I And I actually wonder if Jack Lemon's performance is broader here because you, you are doing it so many times and maybe you capture that. I don't know. I maybe don't.
2: that's why his laugh sounds like a hairball. He's just out of laughter.
1: He's just done. I don't know. I mean, and again, I do think that those are choices that they're making. But keeping that energy up, thinking about that, really just going like that many times.
2: I mean, let me ask you, when you've been in that situation – If, say, on take 22, somebody screwed up something stupid, does a little part of you be like, I hate you.
1: Oh, sure. I mean, if if you're waiting on one person, I've never been in a situation where it's been directly one person. The two times I can tell you that I've experienced this, one was it was a scene problem, right? So that was we're all doing great, but the scene's not working. So keep on running it. Maybe there's a tweak. The other time I did it, I was kind of off to the side. I had a couple lines, but it wasn't like my scene. And there was just not a chemistry going on between these two characters, a romantic chemistry. And it. we got to like take 10. And take 10 is a lot. And the same camera setup, it's a lot. Like, I mean, again, I'm not working on Avengers. I'm working on different things. And the performance, I watched that performance get crazier and crazier because it's like, well, let me try this, let me try this. And you're starting to spiral out, but you can't move on. You can't shake it off. You can't be like, all right, you know what? Let's just stop this, come back to it later. A lot of times for me, like if I'm writing, I'll be like, I can't get this. I'm going to move forward and then I'll come backwards. You have to get it. You have to leave, uh, you know, the, the set and the scene with it done and how you approach it. If it's feeding it word by word, if it's, you know, Standing off camera, I, I I can't imagine the energy that it drains from the crew and cast. I I just think it, it bodes for bad performances across the board, uh, from technically and creatively.
2: <laughs> so is this like the comedy version of Apocalypse Now that they yeah to I mean it seems like pods? it.
1: I mean I talked to you know my wife, it, been in uh, a David Fincher film and she did like seventy five takes of a scene and they said to her like that's great like. He must have been very happy with that. Like, and it wasn't said <laughs> sarcastically. It was sort of like, you got it. Like, Robert Danny Jr. tells a story where he's getting out of a car in Zodiac. Um, and he's just getting out of a car and walking upstairs in the rain. And they did it 45 times. And he's like, did we get it? And Fincher said, no, but I'll tell you when we're close. Like, so, like, You know, we're in this zone where, you know, like, you can lose your mind. And and all this to say that it makes the movie more impressive. It makes the movie tremendously more impressive. But I also understand, like, when Billy Wilder has, like, this wrap dinner party at his house, he doesn't invite Marilyn Monroe because (laughs) – he basically goes my doctor my therapist tell me i'm too old and too rich to go through this again so like he's done with her and i i could see like being behind the camera shoving the suppositories up your butt like yeah like i'm like I I, I I can't even put my eyes on you because you are disaster to me
2: <laughs> which i guess would explain why when somebody asked tony curtis what kissing her was like while they were shooting it um he said it was like kissing hitler <laughs> Have you not heard that? What? No. (laughs) Yeah, they were watching the rushes from their big makeout scene on the bus, on the the boat, and all the crew guys were like, hey, 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 how was that? And he said it was like kissing Hitler because he was just so brain dead. He's changed his story on that a lot. At one point, he was like, I didn't say that. Everybody's like, yes, you did. And then he was like, well, I was just, I mean, what was I going to say? It was terrific. Of course it was terrific. So I said it was like kissing Hitler because it was the unexpected response. Because
1: he hated her so much? I think Or he'd... that she had a mustache.
2: <laughs> I mean, he used to date her. Like, they used to date when he first moved to Hollywood in the I late know. 40s. They met, nobody knew who they were, but they were two really beautiful kids that nobody cared about. And so I think they dated he, maybe seven months is how he wow. explains it. They dated, they drove to the beach. They had these lovely kind of nice encounters that I think he felt very protective over her for a while, but that they were both so career obsessed. They were at 22, 23, 24- right. That neither one of them had any energy at all to actually try to date each other seriously. But he had all
1: this affection for her. Well, it's interesting that he said that because did you know that he and Marilyn were having this, like, fling on the side during the film? What? Um, yes, uh, I read this Guardian article that came out in 2009, and he actually got her pregnant. You were saying that she was dealing with fertility issues at the time. Yeah. She did have a miscarriage of, of with Tony Curtis's child which is crazy but what? this is wait because
2: okay hold on she has yeah. a miscarriage right after the movie wrap she's pregnant in the last month or two yeah. that's his
1: that's his and this is in a book that came out in about 2009 and called- Jamie Lee
2: Curtis is a baby? Well, I, okay.
1: I guess. I mean, it's called "In the Making of Some Like It Hot." I mean, so this is just, what I love about Tony Curtis.
2: What a jerk! He wrote a book the year before and doesn't mention that.
1: Well, because he got to save it for the sequel, baby. Oh my god. Um, but no, he. I, I think that there's a lot of stories here and a lot of people that are, you know, look. Hearing that he's having a, a, a affair with her, he probably doesn't want to show that he's enjoying her on set, you know, especially with Arthur Miller around. So he's got to kind of keep this air up. And, you know, he's a married man. She's a married woman. Imagine that. She's having trouble getting pregnant. She gets pregnant. I mean, what drama is going on on set? But I will say I don't find their chemistry to be at all appealing in this movie. Really? I'm not like I'm not totally invested in it. No. I find actually Jack Lemmon's um, chemistry with his suitor way more appealing. (laughs) I I do. I do. I don't know why.
2: Well, okay. The scene when the two of them are on on the yacht and she's kissing him and Mm -hmm. kissing him and being like, what do you mean you don't feel any pleasure from a woman's kiss? What do you mean? What do you mean? The way she kisses him, I find incredibly compelling. I'm like, Mm -hmm. oh, yeah. I do
1: love that scene. That's a great scene. She
2: kisses him with a ton of energy.
1: So you know tensions are high. But here's another little fun fact. They admit the affair to Arthur Miller. What? Yeah. They go and admit it. and, and Marilyn says, and I'm pregnant. And I think Curtis is like, oh, I didn't, what? Like, he didn't know that she was pregnant. He goes, I just stood there. The room was so silent. I could hear tires screeching on Santa Monica Boulevard. I don't know where he was to make that analogy. He could have been roughly he near Santa Monica. He just had very good ears. Yeah. He was far, far away. But they said to Tony Curtis, like, uh, finish the film. Stay away from Marilyn. Stay away from Arthur Miller. And it was only after filming had finished that he learned of her miscarriage. So I guess they had it, they were separated, and that's the way the story went. Oh, my
2: God. He's such a rat. That baby would have been beautiful, though. Otherwise, you know, in scenes like when they're talking about yachts, I like the scene because it's a little bit Marie Antoinette-y. I think they just have a good banter.
4: Just a little, please. You're blocking my view. Your
2: view
3: of what?
4: They run up a red and white flag on the yacht when it's time for cocktail.
3: You own a yacht? Which one is it?
4: The big one? Certainly not. With all the unrest in the world, I don't think anybody should have a yacht that sleeps more than 12.
3: I quite agree. <laughs> I
2: quite agree as well. Down with gigantic yachts.
1: <laughs> I mean, when they go on that boat, it is a really funny sequence of him trying to figure out where everything is. Cold pheasant also sounds terrible. Does it? I guess maybe it's a cold chicken. But it but... has mint sauce. Hmm. I don't like mint sauce.
2: You don't like mint sauce? Nope,
1: not a fan.
2: I mean, I sort of like that that scene has these vague Titanic allusions too, that they're worried about icebergs. (laughs) (laughs) Can you imagine if Titanic starred them? (laughs) I I mean, Tony Curtis would definitely just get in the lifeboat and be done with it.
1: Yeah, I mean, the character that we meet here, I definitely believe that to be true.
2: I mean, because he's kind of right too. She has this big speech about all the musicians who have done her wrong. And that's exactly what we see him doing to that girl very early on in the film. Yes. Where he is like, what are you doing? Oh, you're doing nothing tonight? Great. Then I can borrow your car and let's put the gasoline on her account.
1: I do love that scene. It's such a great... Uh, He's it, such a rogue. He, yeah, you get to see him be a real cad. Um, yeah,
2: which is a part I really like from it. Like, if people like this Tony Curtis and you haven't seen The Sweet Smell of Success, mm. that movie's amazing. Well,
1: like, that movie, I mean, Burt Lancaster is amazing in that too, right?
2: Oh, they're so good. And like to see Tony Curtis... Who is the Tony Curtis analog? Somebody who... Plays a sleaze ball that well, you know, a guy mm. who's so handsome and so devastating. He walks into room. I don't. know, Is it Joe Manganiello? No, Joe Manganiello is likable. He's not no, like. Oh yeah. not Sleazy.
1: Well, I mean, I think that you know there was something about John Hamm and and Mad Men mm. that played upon that idea, like you know this, uh, you know he definitely had some more demons, um, but you know this idea of like a cad, like you know, and I feel like you you don't really, I think you don't really see that that much anymore you know I would say Robert Downey Jr. is very similar to this like has an air about him that he's attractive but he kind of brushes off people and you know especially in Iron Man 1 you see that very much in uh like that kind of energy yeah he's attractive
2: but don't loan him your car exactly yeah although to be fair the biggest cat in this entire movie 100% creepy bellboy right
1: oh my gosh creepy
2: bellboy who's like don't worry about leaving your door open tonight I have a key what
1: (laughs) and he comes in with a bottle of gin well, can we talk about something else here as we're we're deconstructing this film? Um, I have to say the weakest part of this film for me is this mafia subplot, right? Because it's played in two different ways. One, first of all, like Mr. Mozzarella, you know, like this kind of like broad like very mobstery thing. And then also then it points played very real like the hit during this, like, convention, you know, fake convention, which I do love all that kind of what appears from the outside versus what it is on the inside and how it all kind of comes together. But
2: Yeah, not even a birthday cake can be trusted to be a birthday cake. Well, I
1: mean, it's four months early. It's a terrible plan. I mean, it's, <laughs> the man knows – this spats knows he's going to die.
2: You, but, one shot of that, by the way, Tony Curtis had a stripper jump out because it was Billy Wilder's birthday.
1: Oh, that's hilarious. I love that. <laughs> but – um but there is something about it where I'm like, we're investing a lot of time and energy in this subplot that I feel like we don't need. I mean, clearly you need it to come in at the end to kind of motivate the third act and the escape. Um, but when you get into that long sequence where Spats is getting kind of dressed down, I'm like, why are we here? It's the same for the beginning, too. It's like, why are we putting so much shoe leather on this storyline? It could be so simply done and I love the opening because the opening opens up in such a great, you know, idea. But it also kind of exists. <laughs> it, like, <laughs> it exists only to get you to the point that he, that he has to go get the guy who ratted him out for the place where he has to speak. Yeah. It's like we're putting a lot of weight on this. Probably, I would say, 15, 20 minutes uh, of true. like time where it's, it's not comedy. And I don't even think it's interesting drama.
2: I, mean, I think it's a little funny, but I have never heard anybody say, I love Sun, Like It Hot. It's one of the greatest mobster movies. You're like, what? No. That that subplot, I think, gets forgotten whenever you think about this movie from a distance. Oh. Although, yeah. I want to go to that speakeasy so bad that speaking oh, looks like the most fun bar on the planet. Let's make that easy. I know. All right, I'm almost surprised it hasn't happened as an interactive pop up. And also, I want another cup of coffee, guy. Feels like the I want my two dollars, two dollars, guy, <laughs> like echoing through the landscape of all of our tiny two dollar worth needs.
1: Well, I I, uh, I agree with you. I am all I am all in on that scene and that sequence. It is though something that was so bizarre to me. I was like, when it opens up, and I'm like, wait, we're still in this, like. Wait, what is the premise of this movie? I mean, I think it's trying to be two things at once. I I believe that that also is a sign of Billy Wilder trying to be a little bit more elevated than your normal, you know, comedy like this. I think he's trying to do something a little bit more interesting. Um,
2: I do appreciate how he gives all these mobsters these unique little details or bits or moments. How Bonaparte has his hearing aid.
1: mm, I do like that, too. I love that. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and how he casts a guy who doesn't seem completely just like stereotypical mobster out of a box. Mm -hmm. You know, he's he's interesting. Everybody in this film has kind of a wrinkle to them that makes them slightly more than a stock character.
1: I agree. Well, I mean, if we want to talk about one of the best characters in the film, though, we got to talk about Joey Brown. Ah, that was good. So good. Who – who is the the love interest of Jack Lemmon. We've mentioned him a little bit before, but wow. What a performance and what a match performance to Jack Lemmon.
2: Who's really the only person not faking who he is in this entire movie? Yeah. He's just like, "I'm rich, I have a bunch of wives. Do you want to be
1: one?" What I love about him is he's so self-assured about who he is, and that's a fun contrast again in the film. Like you said where everyone's hiding their, you know, their inner side. And that's why I kind of like him and Jack Lemmon together. I feel like there is like a genuine connection between these two there's something there
2: i mean he has a smile like a muppet right the mm-hmm. kind of smile that just cracks your face in half he's a cad i mean, i love actually i want to listen to the scene where he immediately... is he a
1: cad if he's open about being a cad Can you every be...
2: cad tries to get away with the i am open about being a cad therefore i'm not a cad excuse okay. i do not buy that excuse. all right because then i could be like i'm i'm flighty and and and, and and I'm I'm always running my car under the curb. Alright, you know I guess I should stop running my car under the curb. But all right. I don't know why that was the first excuse I had my, I, I in mean, my in my head of very all of specific my specific thing, yeah, but all right. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> I don't even run my car into the curb that much. <laughs> I should I should now I should defend my reputation as a car curber. But anyways, that's not the point. The point is I would listen to the scene where Osgood gets Jack Lemon into the elevator, and I love this visual gag that Billy Wilder does with the white elevator arrow as it goes up to a floor. And basically, it makes me laugh so It's hard. basically just a dick, but I love the sound effect.
1: <laughs> All right, driver,
4: once around the park, slowly, and keep your eyes on the road.
3: What
4: kind of a girl do you think I am, Mr. Fielding? Oh, please,
2: please, it won't happen again. I'll say, please. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that is, I think, a perfect use of pushing a joke as far as you can in the code.
1: You know, what I'm kind of interested in is the reception of this film. I mean, the first screening uh, goes horribly wrong. Uh, Like, people walk out, uh, you know, and Jack Lemmon is freaking out, you know, and Billy Wilder says something which I really like, and it's a good – lesson to kind of remember he's like look this is a very funny movie I believe in it and don't panic over one preview and they previewed it again and the same cut had audiences cheering and giving a standing ovation which I think is an interesting idea of like what comedy comedy really is so specific to the audience that's watching it and if an audience is in ultimately I think you get everybody kind of follows with it and I think that What I like about Wilder is he does dramatic things or he plays with other genres like Hitchcock and puts a comedic spin on it. Like, this movie could also function as a a drama to a certain extent. You know, you could see – you'd have to change a lot of elements to it, but you could see it being played a lot less for laughs.
2: Yeah, it could go a little bit as a thriller even. You know, you could get more into the tension and the stakes of the guys losing their minds and more into the mafia more into the gold-plated toothpick. I mean, just I love these little details. What I really respect so much about this script is the callbacks that d- exist just for tiny bits of amusement. Like the whole thing about type O blood. Typo blood meaning nothing really, but it just comes back four times. Just these little casual references to typo yeah. blood, figuring out ways of it. And I love that because those are the moments where you feel like you're really in the hands of a director who's thought about it. Even though we kind of hadn't had it. You know, he and AL Diamond had this really interesting working partnership. Where they would just, they wrote 60% of the script. You know, they had 60 pages of it done when they started shooting. And then they're like, we're going to just finish it along the way. We're going to start shooting and figure out how it ends. They had this openness to it. And also the way that he wrote, that the pair of them wrote, is that they cast really early before they even finished the script. They would send people treatments about what their character was going to be. And then when they said yes, and then they knew knew that they had the funding and they knew that they could proceed, then they kept writing the script but tailored it to the person who had already said yes. So it wasn't so much like they were shopping around for something that would fit someone perfectly. It's that they cast the person who would get it greenlit and then molded it to them. That's because a, they made this film actually outside of the studio system. They made it with a company who was sort of an independent company that was one of the better ones, like the A24s of their day. Oh, who really? Who was financing it and then distributing it through Universal. So casting really young and then signing people on to like let them take the bonuses afterwards instead of upfront payments. I thought
1: that was really interesting because everyone got a little bit of cut of the back end on this movie.
2: Exactly, and that's a lot of how they got it made. You know, this is – we don't really think of something like it as a groundbreaking independent film. But in a lot of ways, it really helped get this one company off the ground.
1: And now this plot is not an original idea, though, right? I mean, this is a movie that was uh, based on a screenplay written by Robert Thorin and Michael Logan from a 1935 French film called Fanfare of Love. Um, but... The original script for Fanfare of Love was kind of untraceable, so Walter Murch found a copy of the 1951 German remake, Fanfares of Love. He bought the rights to the script, and Wilder um, worked with him to produce a new story. And so Some I Get Hot is partly a remake of Fanfare of Love, as both films follow the story of two musicians in search of work. But Wilder created the gangster subplot uh, and keeps the musicians on the run. Um, so I thought that was an interesting thing, too, like because you always view this as a solely original uh, idea.
2: Yeah. I mean, one of the stories I heard about it was that this was a story that was echoing in Billy Wilder's mind from back when he lived in Germany. Because, you know, he was in Germany. He left when the Nazis came to power. And he saw this original French version of the film. And I think it was rattling around his head. I mean, one of the big differences is in the French version, these musicians are so desperate for a job that they change their identity twice And they do blackface for half the movie. They join an all-black band. And Billy Wilder, very smartly. Yeah. ah, ah,
1: The the, the Neil Diamond one. Not even the original one.
2: Really? I've never seen the Neil Diamond one.
1: Yeah. Neil Diamond wears blackface. (laughs) What? It's a thing.
2: (sighs) Anyway, Billy Wilder was like, forget that part. Let's just focus on the lady parts. And then he tried to say, I just took the idea of the men dressed up as ladies, and that was it. But actually, the real 50s remake has all the bits of like people running in and out and changing clothes and being in love with the singer of the band. Like there's a lot that's kind of similar. I think it's all the mafia stuff that he added, which is maybe why there's so much mafia is him being like, this is different. I swear this is a totally different film.
1: It's interesting because we're still living in a time where yes, we want original ideas, but if you can base it in something that already exists, uh, it's much better received. I mean, who cares about fanfare of love ultimately? Um, And how much is it really based on that? Again, like we just said a little bit, but I think probably to make sure everyone's comfortable they go well no no it's based on a very successful french film that was remade into a german film and we'll make it into this one
2: and it's also i think in a lot of ways based on marilyn's life a touch of it you know when she has the scene of sugar Qualtic where she talks about the type of men that she likes being men who wear glasses mm-hmm. that is a thousand percent marilyn monroe marilyn monroe wrote in her autobiography my life which she never finished how much she loved men in glasses <laughs>
3: I'm gonna be 25 in June. You are? That's a quarter of a century. Makes a girl think. About what? About the future. You know, like a husband. That's why I'm glad we're going to Florida. What's in Florida? Millionaires, flocks of them. They all go south for the winter like birds. Oh, you're gonna catch yourself a rich bird? Oh, I don't care how rich he is, as long as he has a yacht, his own private railroad car, and his own toothpaste. You're entitled. Maybe you'll meet one too, Josephine. Mm -hmm with money like Rockefeller and shoulders like Johnny Weissmuller. Oh, I wouldn't mind to wear glasses. Glasses? Men who wear glasses are so much more gentle and sweet and helpless. Haven't you ever noticed it?
1: Now that you've mentioned it? Mm -hmm.
3: They get those weak eyes from reading. You know, those long, tiny, little columns in the Wall Street Journal. I mean, she's just so
2: lovely and so convincing in there. Yeah. And Tony Curtis was like, actually, I think the men that she thought were attractive were men who looked like Abraham Lincoln. He said all of her all of the men he ever saw with had this Abraham Lincoln quality to them. But just her way of comedy of just knowing the ridiculous thing that her character is saying. Like she doesn't care if he's rich as long as he has a yacht.
1: Yeah. And just letting him own roll toothpaste. Off.
2: Exactly. Does that
1: mean that he makes toothpaste? Like his name is like Edward G. Crest or Tom, you know, Tom Colgate, or that he just has his own tube? And is it so hard to come by? a Tom
2: Colgate, eligible bachelor.
1: (laughs) (laughs) The Colgate fortune built on fluoride and dreams.
2: But, you know, it's fascinating because you just can't take your eyes off of her.
1: Absolutely. And
2: she was saying, you know, when she got really into trying to take acting lessons, one of the people she studied with was a descendant of Anton Chekhov. Hmm. And she was doing the scene from The Cherry Orchard with him. And he stopped and he was like, are you thinking about sex right now? And she was like, No. I'm thinking about the scene. I'm focused on this. And he's like, that's fascinating because all I can think about is sex. I feel like you're just radiating sex at me. And I thought you were doing it on purpose. And she's like, not at all. And that was this problem wow. she had coming through Hollywood. And one of, the, one of the studio bosses was like, here's the thing about you. You just vibrate with the sexual energy. And if I just had the camera on you and it didn't even move, people would feel all of that. And so she was so sensitive that she was almost being used as like this camera trick. Yeah. You know, but she radiates this thing through the lens. And you know you see her use it here for the power of good, for turning into this great performance. But she was just so uncomfortable with it. And so in a way, watching this movie makes me sad. Because it's like the best and worst of her entire life story is in this
1: role. Yeah, it's really interesting to see this like, kind of seedy underbelly here. So kind of close to the surface in a weird way, even where in everything else that we've kind of seen from her or know of her persona, it's much more distance.
2: Yeah, and so when she sings Through With Love at the end of this movie, I mean, my God, having all of this Tony Curtis information in mm. your head now, knowing that she and Arthur Miller are about to absolutely split up for good – I love this moment because you hear all the vulnerability in her voice, but also when you watch it, you see her hands, her twisting nervously, this piece of fabric, which was another thing that she had been doing in between takes was shaking her hands to try to steady her nerves. It's just, it breaks my heart. Maybe that's why I want gentlemen preferred blondes in the canon over this one, just because...
1: This makes you too uncomfortable. It makes me too
2: uncomfortable because I—I like I love her so much. And in this movie, I feel like we are not protecting her. But she's so radiant
3: Ah Why did you lead me to think you could care? You didn't need me, you had your share of slaves around you to hound you and sweat with deep emotion, devotion to you. Goodbye. Is that her
1: actual voice?
2: Yeah, yeah, she actually sang. And I think she has a lovely voice.
1: Yeah, really beautiful voice. It was so good that I was like, I don't think that that's her actual voice. It must have been somebody else singing there.
2: Look at you.
0: Believe women,
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Justin and So Good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag & Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more great brands great prices every day at nordstrom rack but hurry for first dibs get your summer favorites up to 60 percent off at nordstrom rack today great brands great prices that's why you rack
4: Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest but let me play devil's advocate here let's see so no that's a good thing Uh, (laughs) that's definitely not a problem Uh, Reese's you did it you stumped this charming devil
1: So, Amy, um, you know, we've spent a lot of time in this episode talking about Marilyn Monroe. And she's a very complex character. And we thought it would be interesting to get a perspective on her from an actress who played her in a film. And it's a really interesting film uh, that came out in the 90s on HBO called Norma Jean and Marilyn. And the movie had Norma Jean being played by Ashley Judd. And uh, Marilyn Monroe being played by Mira Sorvino. So today, we have the Academy Award winning actress, Mira Sorvino, here today to talk to us a little bit about getting in Marilyn's headspace. So welcome, Mira.
2: Mira, I kind of feel like playing Marilyn Monroe almost feels like the female version of playing Hamlet. Like, so many great actresses try to take on this role, like what are the challenges to playing Marilyn Monroe to try to, to try to capture what she brought
5: to the screen? Well, I think the biggest challenge is that no one, least of all myself, can ever really be Marilyn. Um, so that's extremely daunting, you know, having grown up as a giant fan of hers. I just loved her as a teenager and beyond. Um, you know, one day on the set, I actually started having a panic attack because we were doing the scene in the car, that was supposed to be sort of behind the scenes of the Misfits. And I was actually wearing her dress. It was a silk oh, wow. dress with, it's white, it's like a halter top dress with cherries on it. And I had found it when I was strolling around New York City in a costume shop. And I saw it in a glass case above the desk. And it had a little placard saying that it was her actual costume from yeah. the movie. And I said, oh, I'm, I'm playing her in an HBO film. Is there any way we could rent this from you? And they did um, so I was actually wearing her dress, and I felt like I was on sacred ground and I shouldn't be there. And I started having this, like, little crisis of, you know, doubt. That how, how dare I even try and play Marilyn Monroe? And then this sort of thing washed over me, which was, well... No one can be Marilyn Monroe. She was unique. She was one and only. So just take your mind off of that. You can't be her. All you can do is just try and show what you think you know about her, what you think you've learned about her inside, and, um, and make this your homage to her. And, uh, and that really freed me because otherwise it was way too, you know, daunting of, a, of an Everest to scale
2: I mean, I guess having nerves like that, that does feel like Marilyn, who was always so anxious about how she was going to come across on screen.
5: Yes, she definitely struggled with a lot of self-doubt. Um, I felt that what might have saved her is if she could have loved someone else in a generative, like caretaking way, rather than being the object of affection. Like if she had to take care of someone, like a child or You know, even an older relative and was in a sort of daily relationship of caregiving rather than wanting love from others to make her feel validated. I think that that might have saved her, but she just never was really in that position her whole life.
1: You know, most famously in this film, you know, Marilyn was late and she couldn't get her lines right. And, you know, I think it was like 50 takes to, you know, for the bourbon line. Do you have any insight of what was going on in her head at that point?
5: There were so many people prescribing her different pills, and, you know, everyone was on uppers and downers in those days, Uh, you know, things to relax, things to lose weight, things to sleep, uh, things to keep awake, and I'm sure that combined with her self-doubt was not a good combination, but I can't really say... Right. Why particularly she was having line retention issues that day? I mean that happens to all of us, you know. At some point, sometimes you have a scene where you just keep screwing up the lines, and then you know that people are watching you, and you feel bad because you feel like you've just wasted a take and you've wasted people's time, and then you're almost more likely to do it again. Yeah, it's because the you worst added pressure. <laughs> and I don't think that Tony Curtis was really, you know, I don't know. I mean, I heard. A you know, a quote of him saying kissing her was like kissing Hitler or something like that. But, um, you know, I think I think she had sort of an adversary there, perhaps.
2: What you do really capture so well is her voice. I don't even know how to explain what it takes to do her voice. How do you...
5: What was the Marilyn style of speaking? Well, I mean, I, I, I ended up... I studied her movies a, a great deal, and I also went to the Museum of... This is before This is before everything was widely available on the Internet, right? Right. So... So I went to the Museum of Television Radio and I listened to audio recordings of interviews of her uh, that were radio recordings because I wanted to hear what her voice would be like when she wasn't performing a role to see if it was still that breathy high baby doll voice. And the interesting part was that it, it still went up that high, but it also went down much lower into a much more relaxed sort of deeper tonality when she was sort of being herself, but it, it it was more rangy rather than always in that higher register. But she had these very uh, idiosyncratic ways of saying certain consonants and, you know, her plosives. And, and, and so I just would record her voice, and then I would leave a space, like I'd record a sentence and then leave a space for myself, and I would record the same line. And then I would listen to the two, and then I'd erase my version again and again and again until it sounded exactly like hers. And you have to do that enough that you can finally improvise in the voice. So you could go off book in the voice, and you can speak as the person all the time. With her, I even did video work because um, because she was a historic personage that everyone is, a, you know, aware of. And it wasn't just like I'm playing a person who was in the history books, but we don't know what she really acted like. I mean, there's such a a film record of her. So I recorded a scene from River of No Return, I think, and just watched how she used her face as she spoke in the scene. And then I would do the same thing. I would be watching her with the VCR, and then I'd have a video camera trained on myself, and I'd do the same scene, and then I'd watch and see if I could get the facial movements right you know, everything with her eyes and her mouth and, and just the tilt of her head and when she took pictures, the way she would hold her head up. I always used to, like in those days, in the 90s, whenever I took pictures, I would keep my chin down because I, I thought I looked better with my chin down. And she would always hold her hold her head up, which I think someone had told her made her nose look shorter or something. Oh, but wow. um So then I had to, you know, just really just try and even her walk, everything, you know.
2: But then there's also things that you get to do in this movie that she never did in real life that I thought really captured a truth about her, even though they were so fantasy. You know, of course, like the moment where you and uh, Jane Russell put your boobs in Grom and (laughs) Cement along with your handprints. (gasps) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But really, just, I mean, even the basic conceit of this movie, that you get to have Norma Jean as a character, played by Ashley Judd, you know, yelling all these things at Marilyn, trying to tell her who Marilyn is and who she should be, and like really representing this insecurity, you know, scene for scene, getting to go head-to-head head with her own insecurity.
5: Yes, it was very interesting. Of course, as an actor, I had I kind of had to play her as a whole person, so for me, I was Marilyn, and that was like an annoying voice in my head but that i was the real marilyn and i think for her she was the real marilyn and i was her creation um but you have to play a person as a as a whole person even if you're playing in this sort of altered reality and super super interesting it was a really interesting take on her um yeah the way she and, and if you look at all of these stars you know recently i've been reading a lot about lana turner And you look at them from their earliest days, and they're really almost unrecognizable from, you know, the sort of sweet girl next door, fresh-faced young actress they are when they come in, and then what they were sort of turned into by the glamour machine of the studio system. Um, And how unattainable that new person really is to maintain, you know, how, how very difficult it would be to be that that image of perfection all the time. To
2: kind of get back to what you were just saying about like stardom then and this pressure to live this fantasy so that audiences could could dream about this person that they saw on screen. I mean, now that stardom is more accessible, is that pressure different? Like how is Hollywood different today than what Marilyn went through? And what parts are still the same?
5: Uh, well, I think a lot of it is different in terms of that the social mores have changed, so, um, you know, back in those days, if people had a scandal, you know, the studio could threaten them, that it would destroy them. And they, you know, with the Lana Turner situation, I'm reading all about her, how she was uh, forced to have an abortion because the studio felt that the audience wouldn't accept her having a child out of wedlock and um you know, all kinds of ways in which the studio sort of ran their lives. I think that's very different now. I don't think any studio runs any actor's life. You can't, they, they don't have, like, controls on, you know, sort of what you do outside of your time on set. I mean, they could be unhappy if somebody, you know, has a, you know, a drug problem and then ask them to go to rehab or something like that, but it's a very different world. They, they were much more um, the foot soldiers of of the studios uh, in those days um, and really paid very little while they were under contract. So they didn't have a lot of autonomy. Yeah. Uh, But I think in terms of the public expectation for people to be perfect or people not to age or people not to gain weight, um, that pressure still exists, but then I think there's this sort of backlash and you see people who completely flout that standard and, you know, brilliantly so and are happy doing it and have all these fans out there who are happy that they are not the norm. They're not the sort of perfect cookie cutter version of what a perfect human being is supposed to stay like forever. So I, I do think we've sort of advanced to a certain extent. But of course, I mean, I think being an actress, every actress feels like, oh, my gosh, I can't get old looking. I can't get fat. Right, You know, that there's definitely a pressure that we feel, even if some of us do, and then are like, well, how do you like me now? But <laughs> you, know, just, you, you you feel that, that terror that you will not be as uh, relevant once you're deemed of a different generation than the people that they're targeting the work for. Um, and, you know, I mean, I think that that is slowly changing, hopefully, that we're slowly saying that everyone is interesting their whole life long. You know, we don't all have to just look at perfect young human beings who are sort of on the cusp of experience. Like everyone is an interesting person. Everyone is protagonist in their own life. So why don't we do stories about everyone? Um, You know, and with all the diversity as well, as that entails um, everyone from every community, every walk of life, every experience. Um, But, you know, there's still that it's still a visual medium. And I think that that, that is one of the things that that adds that pressure. You're being photographed. And, you know, most people feel shy about how they look in photographs sometimes. You know, they're like, oh, I don't like that. Oh, I can't see myself like that. Oh, yeah. the camera adds 10 minutes. You know, and that, that's your reality as an actor. You're always on camera. So, you know, <laughs> the more things change, the more they are the I just thought of one interesting footnote that goes along to the whole Maryland thing. I oh, think yeah. the best compliment I ever got in my whole career was after... After the movie came out, um, Winona Ryder came up to me and she said she had a message for me from Arthur Miller, um, who she was doing The Crucible with. uh, And I think it was The Crucible. And he said to, he, he asked her, he said, who is that girl who played Marilyn? How did she understand her pain?
3: Wow. And that was
5: like the best compliment I've ever had because obviously I love Marilyn so much. And to hear that her, you know, former husband and brilliant playwright um, had that, you know, had that opinion of the performance, I was really happy. And then it sort of succeeded in doing what I wanted to do. You know, it was the homage to, yeah. to just showing what I felt like I understood
1: that, about her. That really is amazing. That's oh, wow. Amazing.
5: And I'm, I'm
2: kind of struck by the idea of him watching it because that
5: movie isn't that nice to him. <laughs> No. Well, you know, I think he spent a lot of his life um, kind of in apologia afterwards for that. Like he wrote, um, you know, after the fall, kind of about his relationship with her. And he sort of cloaked it in a story about like an intellectual and a a lounge singer rather than an actress. But the character was definitely based on Marilyn. Her name is Maggie, I believe. And and, uh, he's very hard on himself in in that. Uh, So I think he... I think he always felt bad about the way things went down, um, but you know, I, I, I was I was grateful for the for the comment. I thought it was a really you know, if you're going to touch the person who was married to her, you know, and, and remind them of her that was that was like the best i could i could
1: get absolutely wow that's fantastic thank you so much for chatting with us this is fantastic this is great you're amazing
2: <laughs> we really appreciate it thank, thank you. you so much mary and i think part of why marilyn did want to do this movie she had had a good experience working with billy wilder before when they did the seven-year itch and so i think she trusted him right even though it did go badly she trusted him in her very first scene in this movie. It's kind of a callback to her famous scene in The Seven-Year Itch, which I think is even more famous than people having watched the movie itself, but that image of her on the subway grate in the white dress blowing up. I mean, here, they're playing with that. They're kind of elbowing it because they have her walking down this train platform to this music, and then here comes this steam whistle from a train that skitters her around, and that's a sort of like nudge, like, hey, hey, we're back again. The boys are back in town.
4: she moves. That's just like Jello on springs.
2: You must have some sort of built-in motor or something. Right? I like how he, the way he sounds there. He's not just lusting after her. He's right. appreciating it. He's like, how do I get a little bit of that? But the scene was one of the first scenes I think Marilyn shot when she was out this movie. You know, So it was mm-hmm. a big deal for her. It was a big moment for her. And what she had in the fringes of it was not only Billy Wilder, who she was trying right. to impress, but Paula Strasberg, her acting coach. And apparently Paula Strasberg was just there on set also trying to guide Marilyn, and that in between takes, Marilyn wouldn't look at Billy Wilder. She would only look at Paula. This is actually Tony describing it and how awkward it was.
4: Marilyn was supposed to come trouncing down looking for the band, and Billy Wilder was standing on the side, and and Paula Strasberg was standing on the other side. And Marilyn never took her eyes off Paula. Billy Wilder was directing the movie. But uh, she wouldn't spend any time looking at him. She was just Paula. I'd come back, he'd stop. Billy's standing here. She'd look over at Paula to see what Paula had to say. Paula would nod or nod. Finally, we did another take. And this time, uh, Billy Wilder said, cut. He turned around and looked at Paula. He says, how was that for you, Paula? Well, Paula almost fainted in the chair. <laughs> and that was the end of that trouble for Billy Wilder, you know?
2: That's such a tactical way of handling it, to be like, how was that for you, Paula, pretending she actually did have the control that she was. So, I love so that. Yeah. Like I mean, exercising. of course, it's the
1: biggest FU you can possibly do.
2: By the way, I was reading this Marilyn biography the other day, and in the biography, they said, like, oh, people are currently talking about making some like it hot, which did not pan out. Mm-hmm. But the remake that they were talking about that was going to happen was Ron Howard wanted to remake this movie. Really? And he had a cast in mind. You know who it was? Who? Scarlett Johansson as Marilyn. Okay. And then as Jack Lemon and Tony Curtis, you wanted Ashton Kutcher and Shia LaBeouf. What? <laughs> what? I can kind of see it. I think Ashton could really go one-to-one as a young as a Tony Curtis. What the fuck is is that? What? You don't see it?
1: <laughs> no. No.
2: You don't think Shia LaBeouf could do a Jack Lemon?
1: I do not like that casting, and I'll tell you why. Um I feel like Shia LaBeouf doing, like, pre-Transformers, uh, like, post-Holes Shia LaBeouf definitely could do that Jack Lemmon. I that was
2: incredibly like, specific.
1: Well, yeah, because I think there was a, an air about him back then where he was very light and very, you know, uh, kind of goofy. And I think that that definitely captures a little bit of what Jack Lemon does in this film. But not now. I think now he he's actively shunning that. Kutcher, you know, I think he... I think you want somebody a little bit more, um, if it was like a John Hamm, if it was a Robert Downey Jr., there's a certain masculinity uh, that I feel like those men have versus Ashton Kutcher, who seems boyish. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think Ashton Kutcher certainly does comedy, but he's more boyish. He's not
2: predatory, I think, in the right way. Yeah,
1: I I, I just feel like there is something that seems like a little bit more put on when he's manipulative. Whereas like if he was pretending to be a yacht, like what I love about this movie is no one seems when they're lying to be at uh, doing it for evil's sake. Right. And I feel like Ashton Kutcher is lying. It feels a little bit uh, more like, Oh, I don't feel totally great about this. Another reason why this movie shouldn't really be remade. But, uh, and then Scott Johansson, who I think is a, fantastic actress when well, I I think she does some amazing work I almost feel like she's a little too in control like you know I, I think that she's a little bit more muted than this than that character needs to be I think there needs to be a naivete there and and I think you know Marilyn walks this line of having lived the life and we talk about this throughout the whole podcast but also still uh exuding this naivete and I, I don't I don't really find that with Scarlett Johansson. I feel like she seems incredibly in control of her herself and and smart and yes she's incredibly sexy and does all this sort of great work but I think you want to find somebody that feels a little bit more uh vulnerable in a way I think this movie is a terrible idea I think we should put uh, an end to any sort of uh swapping gender films in general let's be done with it we've explored Uh, it
2: you're a man with a machine gun taking it to the hearse of this idea
1: I just yeah I think like you know what body swap I'm still in for body swaps but gender swap we've we've moved forward as a culture let's Put this in the rearview mirror. It doesn't mean that we have to cancel it or anything else. I enjoy it all you want, but I don't think there's anything left for us to say about dudes dressing up as women. Uh, you know, that's going to be that much more eye opening. I think we got it. I think we we've explored it. Can we talk a little bit about the title? Some like it hot. Obviously, it's pulled from that little sequence uh, on the beach where he's talking about jazz. Tony Curtis is talking about jazz. Um, It's so odd, though, because it's a weird turn of phrase that doesn't really – I mean, it doesn't really play into anything about the film, right? The original title was Not Tonight, Josephine.
2: Oh, well, you know where that comes from. Because at first I was like, not tonight, Josephine. That's the weirdest line ever because actually Josephine seems to be like, yes, yes, please, tonight. I am Josephine. I say yes. Apparently, not Tonight Josephine is um, a thing that Napoleon once said to Josephine, to his Josephine. Oh wow! That he loved. I was. I don't know if he had to like go invading or something. It's like, <laughs> oh, I
1: got a lot of invading tomorrow in the morning, sweetie. But then, even the Russian translation of the film just became uh, only girls are allowed in jazz.
2: Only girls are allowed in jazz.
1: <laughs> yeah, which is fun. funny. This movie really like embraces like the jazz part of it like you know like it's like oh yeah that's how we should title this film fanfare of love like we were talking about earlier that's also not really like what are we talking about <laughs> just an odd uh, like when you know the title I love I love a title that doesn't really have that much to do with the film it's not a jazz movie it's not about like it's not about jazz
2: <laughs> it's it's no la la land
1: yeah i mean i don't know it's just a, it's uh it's interesting and then, then this film also then inspires other things that the titles are bizarre it has a broadway musical called sugar which ran for like 500 performances and then it had like a spin-off tv show uh <laughs> which uh, which actually uh tony curtis and jack lemon appeared in um called like a uh it actually starred victim and tina louise um, but it never aired. It was an oh. Unsum- that's the
2: one where they were like, "All right, we need another job. Let's get plastic surgery, so that way we can have other people play us in the TV show because we're busy."
1: Oh, really?
2: Yeah, I think that's how it worked out. If it had gone, if it had gone according to plan, Tony Curtis and Jack Lemmon be like, "Well, now it's off to our next case, our next wow." Caper. Hold on, let's re- completely redo our face so we can be played by completely other
1: people. That's amazing. Well, then, uh, and then more recently in 2019, uh, Mark Shaman and Scott Whitman are doing a new updated version of this as a, uh, a Broadway show. Uh going to come out on Broadway next year, 2020.
2: Well, that's fascinating. I mean, actually, I think oof, maybe 10-ish years ago, a little bit over 10 years ago, they did the Broadway version of it again and Tony Curtis came back. As was Osgood. That,
1: was that in Sugar? Was that Sugar, that one?
2: I think it was actually just Something Like It Hot. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, he came back and he played Osgood, which I was looking everywhere for a clip of that and I couldn't find it. Because, I mean, he'd already had a stroke, I think, at that point. And when he got better, he was like, he did, I think, over 300 performances as Osgood. Can you imagine? Like, yeah. Tony Curtis having to wheedle for a date is also strange because he never did that, I think, in any of his movies. Yeah, yeah, he was like, yeah. you love me. Like, in a lot of ways, I think he's the, the male Marilyn Monroe. You know, they both show up. They're both very insecure that people don't take them seriously as actors. They have a lot of anxiety about it. They're so beautiful that nobody can really see them straight.
1: They were the perfect couple. I mean, look, they could have been.
2: Uh, um, well, well, I want I want better for Marilyn than that. Uh, but, but it does make me think of the poster line. I think the tagline for this movie is so strange. Marilyn Monroe and her bosom companions. <laughs> That's on a poster. Marilyn Monroe and her bosom companions.
1: Well, well, well.
2: I mean, maybe we should bring back bosom as just a positive adjective.
1: Well, bosom buddies.
2: Yeah, bosom buddies. But that, you know, can we bring it back today?
1: Uh, maybe. I mean, you know, it's a tr- It's a tricky word. It doesn't even fall off the tongue very easily. Yeah. Well, how did this movie, how was this movie received when it comes out? It,
2: I, fine. Yeah. It was charming. People liked it. Like, it wasn't as rapturous. It wasn't number 22 rapturous. Right. I think the 22 has grown on it. In in retrospect, people liked it. I couldn't really find a negative review. In fact, the only negative review I found was from the Catholic Legion of Decency. I had heard about this. Exactly. Because I was like, well, they're the only people who are going to go super, super hard on it. So this is a review from Monsignor Thomas Little. It was a letter that he sent out when he saw a screening of this movie. And you know the, the Catholic Legion of Decency had a ton of power from... The 30s, really, like late 20s to 30s on, if the Catholic Legion of Decency was against you, whoa, it's a very bad thing.
1: So it's not ending up on the Vatican list like Lawrence Arabia.
2: Exactly. It's weakening a bit by this point, um, but still, you don't want to be condemned, or maybe you do for the publicity sense. Um, So here's what the Catholic Legion of Decency said. They said, the film, though it purports to be a comedy, contains screen material elements that are judged to be seriously offensive to Christian and traditional standards of morality and decency. Its treatment deals almost without relief on gross suggestiveness in costuming dialogue and situations. And they say, and it says in this letter that they bordered on condemning the film because the subject matter of transvestitism naturally leads to complications. And in this film, there seemed to, to us to be clear inferences of homosexuality and lesbianism and that the dialogue was not only double entendre, but outright smut. Hmm. And yet they gave it a B.
1: B, not bad. Yeah, I mean, yeah look, if you're going to get that kind of a, a real shakedown, a B is not bad at all. <laughs> So this movie, though, gets tons of nominations, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Cinematography, Black and White, Best Art Direction, Black and White, and uh, it wins for Best Costume Design, Black and White. Uh, And this is the year, you know, it's a big year for the Academy Awards 1960. This is the year that uh, Ben-Hur is winning Best Motion Picture and Director and Actor. Um, You know, this is uh, an even Best Supporting Actor, which is interesting because... Ben-Hur, obviously 99 on the list. And I would argue the impact of Ben-Hur is so much slighter than Sunlight like it Hot. Even though I am not the biggest fan of something like it hot i, I think that preston sturgis belongs on this list and i would easily move this off for uh lady eve i think oh, i that, love
2: lady eve
1: so good and if you think about other like great billy wilder films like i i would kind of move it off for some of those as well like i mean if you think about like i mean
2: we've got the apartment right we got
1: the apartment which is great but then you have like a stalag 17 fortune cookie i've talked about uh ball of fire Devin, our engineer, says even, like, Ace in the Hole is a movie that is, you know, really a a great Wilder film that's maybe a a little bit forgotten or before its time. So there is some argument to make, in my opinion, for a a simple, you know, almost, like, uh, replacement in the year of this. Like, you know, like, in the time frame that this comes out, I could find something of its ilk, not even to talk about, you know, Things like Groundhog Day or you know classic quintessential comedies. I, I don't know. I I really like it. I'm a big Will- Billy Wilder fan. I like this film. It just doesn't feel like it. It's a necessity on this list for me.
2: Yeah. I mean, I really appreciate that you go harder on comedies than anything else. You know, I think I think you really have this clarity, this X-ray, this moral vision of cutting through and saying like, there is so much comedy in the world that is not here. Yeah. It's it's hard for me to imagine a list that doesn't have a Marilyn. And I don't know if I deeply believe that her showing up in All Battle Eve counts as a Marilyn. I mean, maybe it does because she is tremendous. She's right. radiant. She does a bit of the Marilyn shtick. You know, why do they always look like scared rabbits? It could count. But the idea of probably the largest icon in Hollywood history, right? Yeah, Is there anybody as famous as her? her there's her and James Dean. And I think they're... I think she's above him maybe, just a little bit in terms of iconography, people that you could go into any gas station on Route 66 and there they are. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if we have a more iconic face in Hollywood than hers.
1: But is it iconic because of what she did as an actor or is it iconic because of who she was as a personality? Well, I mean, you can make that argument for James Dean. James Dean is one of the most iconic figures in in pop culture and he's not represented on this list. Uh, and I would argue that I would take a James Dean film over a Maryland film. Really? You know, El- I mean, Elvis is another person who clearly <laughs> has made his mark in film. I mean, he made his mark in music, obviously, as well. But, you know, there's a lot of people that this list does not pull in. So I, I don't feel like we need a Maryland.
2: That's fair. But given that there's so many Dustin Hoffman movies and I never see a Dustin Hoffman clock with swiveling hips anywhere on Hollywood oh, I can Boulevard, get you one on Etsy. Please do, please do, please do for
1: Christmas (laughs) (laughs) Um, Amy, is there a Simpsons?
2: Not exactly Okay Which I found a little bit surprising I, I kind of compiled vague Simpsons This is where Homer and the whole family take over Mr. Burns' house and his yacht And in this image you have Homer Simpson striding onto a yacht and acting basically like Tony Curtis pretending that he knows what he's doing
3: I'm not gonna let you trash Mr. Burns' yacht
4: March you know, I normally listen to you, but I gotta seize this opportunity just in case I never become a real billionaire. Oh,
3: homie, I don't care if you're a billionaire. I love you just because. Hey, there's another way to get on the boat!
2: Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> I mean, even margin there is a touch like the ending of Marilyn Monroe, you know? Right. Can we just play the ending of Marilyn Monroe reacting to finding out that Tony Curtis isn't a billionaire? Absolutely.
1: You
4: don't want me, sugar. I'm a liar and a phony. A saxophone player. One of those no-good nicks you keep running away from. I
3: know, every time.
4: Sugar, do yourself a favor. Go back to where the millionaires are. The sweet end of the lollipop, not the coleslaw in the face, the old socks and the squeezed-out
1: of toothpaste.
3: That's right, pour it on. Talk me
1: out.
3: I mean, it's beautiful.
1: It it's- is, but that pales in comparison to the Actual last line of the film, which I believe is the reason why this film is on the list. It is one of the best minds in cinema. I think it also encapsulates this film. I think it shows how forward this film is in 1959. A really iconic moment. Let's play it and talk about it.
4: I call Mama. She was so happy she cried. She wants you to have our wedding gown. It's
3: white lace. Yeah, good. I can't get married in your mother's dress. <laughs> She and I, we are not built the same way.
4: We can have it altered. Yeah, I know you don't. That's good. I'm going to level with you. We can't get married at all. Why not? Well, in the first place, I'm not a natural blonde. Uh-huh. Doesn't matter.
3: I smoke. I smoke all the time. I don't care. Well, I have a terrible past. For three years now, I've been living with a saxophone player. I forgive you. I can never have children. We can
4: adopt some. But you don't understand, Osgood. Uh, I'm a man. Well, nobody's perfect.
1: Boom. (laughs) And it comes in and just, I mean, it just slams that last line. It's such a great last line. (laughs) Um, And
2: I think it's kind of romantic. It's almost eternal sunshine. Like, I know your flaws. And I'm here for you, anyways. And it's such a funny, I think, send up of the limitations of the code, which is he's speaking in the way the code would make you speak. I've been living with a with a trumpet player, and not like I've been boned. So, dude, yeah. and like it opens the door for misinterpretations.
1: I love it all, and I love that it connects these characters even more. They are in love with each other. They are in love with each other.
2: It's beautiful, but I mean, nobody was happy with this line when they first did it. They were nervous really? that it didn't work. Yeah, I mean. Here, the person who's been alive really talking about it is A.I.L. Diamond's widow. Okay. And here's what she said when they saw the script draft where they thought the last line might be nobody's perfect.
3: I read it, and when he came home, he asked me what I thought, and I said, I thought it was an absolutely brilliant scene, but that I thought that the last line was flat, weak. And he quickly disabused me of that. He says, you're absolutely wrong and Billy agrees with you, and he's wrong too. And he said, you don't understand the whole structure of the scene. He said, everybody in the audience loves to be in on a joke. And he said, and everybody in this audience knows that Jack's last line is going to be, I'm a man, and he's going to take off his wig. And they're braced for that. They're ready for the explosion. He says, the only way you can do the other thing that audiences like, which is a surprise, is to give them the flattest possible reaction, no explosion.
1: Interesting. Right?
2: It's an interesting psychology thing. And when she explains it that way, it makes perfect sense.
1: No, I think that that's a very smart point of view on this. I I really, I never thought about it like that. I like that a lot.
2: You know, as we've been going through this list, I do keep continually being fascinating about the way that All these films fit together like Lego pieces, one leading to the next, leading to the next, leading to the next. And there was one moment that just made it perfect for me. I mean, this film is, of course, coming out of Spartacus. And even though it's taking place in the whole blacklist
1: Well, coming out of is coming out of North by Northwest with the Cary Grant connection, even coming out yeah. of the idea that Tony Curtis bases performance on Grace Kelly. We're having so much connection. And, you know, you even brought up the idea of Hitchcock at the opening. Like, we have a, a lot going on here.
2: There's so much conversation about it. And there's a point uh, in a documentary about something like it hot where Tony Curtis is something that I love because he says it in the Tony Curtis accent. But... um He's talking about how this film also had to deal with a lot of cuts from censors and the fear of that. I just want to let him say it in his own words. This is him talking about the one scene that they did cut, which is really early on, when they're all on the train together. And there's a moment where Marilyn says to Tony, do you want to take my bunk instead of the one that I have? Because the person next to me snores. Yeah. So Tony takes her bed and then Jack Lemmon sneaks into the bed thinking she's in it and winds up spooning Tony Curtis. And that was the one thing they cut out between the preview that didn't work and the preview that did. And here's Tony Curtis explaining why they cut it out.
3: Why do you think they
4: cut it? Well, it was one man humping another. It was that same bullshit that they did with Spartacus.
1: <laughs> That's amazing. Holy crap. I love that.
2: I just want to learn how to say that exactly.
1: One like man humping it? another.
2: It was the same bullshit they did about Spartacus. Uh. <laughs> but okay, so now let's figure out how this film's going to blend into what we do next. Let's go to the number 62 spot on the list for a film set in 1962. It is George Lucas's American Graffiti. Now, I'm kind of curious about this. American Graffiti was a title that George Lucas really had to fight for in order to keep. Everybody thought it was too obscure. They didn't know what graffiti meant, which is something we're going to talk about, I think, next week. But it had me thinking... If you are going to do a piece of graffiti, if you're going to spray paint something on a big, beautiful wall, what would you spray paint to represent America? So that is your call-in for next week's episode. Tell me about your piece of American graffiti. Our number, as always, is 747-666-5824. That is 747-666-5824. And we will see you next week for American Graffiti.